Good morning, I'm Stuart Fink. And the first quote is from George R.R. R. Martin, who I'm sure many of you know. I think there are two types of writers, the architects and the gardeners. The architects plan everything ahead of time, like an architect building a house. They know how many rooms are going to be in the house, what kind of roof they're going to have, where the wires are going to run, what kind of plumbing there's going to be. They have the whole thing designed and blueprinted out before they even nail the first board up. The gardeners dig a hole, drop in a seed, and water it. They kind of know what seed it is. They know if planted a fantasy seed or mystery seed or whatever. But as a plant comes up and they water it, they don't know how many branches it's going to have. They find out as it grows. And I'm much more a gardener than an architect. The second quote is from Tahira Mafit. We write every day. We fight every day. We think and scheme and dream a little dream every day. Manuscripts pile up in the kitchen sink. Run-on sentences dangle around our necks. We plant purple prose in our gardens and snip the adverbs only to thread them in our hair. We write with no guarantees, no certainties, no promises of what might come, and we do it anyway. This is who we are. And the last quote is from Samuel R. Delaney from The Jewel-Hinged Jaw, Notes on the Language of Science Fiction. In a very real way, one writes a story to find out what happens in it. Before it is written, it sits in the mind like a piece of overhead gossip or a bit of intriguing tattle. The story process is like taking up such a piece of gossip, hunting down the people actually involved, questioning them, finding out what really occurred, and visiting pertinent locations. As with gossip, you can't be too surprised if important things turn up that were left out of the first heard version entirely, or if points initially made much of turn out to be have been distorted, or simply not to have happened at all. Thank you. Uh, Glenn has asked us um, to say a few words about our book reading experience, so I'll say my part, hopefully not too long, be brief. <laughs> um, it's interesting uh, how things change. In our family room, when I grew up, there was a large bookcase which kind of predominated in the room, filled with many books from my father and mother. And the, one of the main sources of reading for me in that collection was <laughs> the World Book Encyclopedia. We had a complete set. People bought encyclopedias in those days from door-to-door salesmen, you may remember. And uh, we had the complete set of the World Book for many, many years actually there. And I vowed as a child I'd read the whole thing. Well, I got as far as C or D, I think. <laughs> 
and uh, that was it. Uh, that took me several years. But I found it fascinating just to page through that and look at the pictures and read the biographies and the science articles and so forth. Very, very fascinating stuff. <laughs> um, I had a few favorite authors as a child growing up. Uh, one, and m many of these you may not know anymore. They were popular once. One was Esther Forbes, who wrote a book, and many others, but one I especially liked was Johnny Tremaine, which was the story of a young man growing up in revolutionary Boston and uh, his experiences with Paul Revere and so forth. Um, very, very exciting stuff. Um, I also really enjoyed the books of, uh, not all of them, but some especially, of Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, who I found to be a marvelous, and still find to be a marvelous writer. Uh, and of course, the classics for me were probably, you're familiar, probably familiar with Treasure Island, uh, although I like Kidnap better than uh, Treasure Island for some reason. And he uh, just transported me with his descriptions of, of adventure, uh, of, the, of the young people that he talked about. And I really, really enjoyed those. Uh, there was another book, which um, also about a young man taking a cross-country trip, and I don't recall the author, but <clears throat> it was called The Long Train's Roll, and I really, really enjoyed that one also. So my favorites tended to be ad adventure-based um, books, and they all involve young men, uh, usually men, who were um, traveling or um, involved in different kinds of activities or throughout the world. They didn't just stay in my familiar neighborhood. They were going traveling throughout the world. As a older um, young man, I enjoyed the historical novels of another writer who is now pretty much forgotten, uh, F. Van Wyck Mason, who wrote a whole series of historical novels based on actual history, but he filled in the details with his own conversation and description of dialogue and so forth. So I really liked, <coughs> or I liked those books as well. But um, it's interesting how things do change. Now, in, as I mentioned, in that living room of ours, the, the bookcase predominated, very noticeable. In my son's living room, can you guess what predominates? <laughs> A large screen. Uh, on the wall, flat screen, and um, that's resorted to on a daily basis by the family or uh, the, sh the children, and they watch many adventures on that screen, animated and real. So, and books are few. Uh, there are a, a few in the in the other uh, room used by the family, but they're disparate and no classics there. Uh, it's uh, there some how to do it books, that kind of thing. So that's quite a change. However, uh, my son does realize the value of books. Uh, we read to him as a child, as I was read to as a child, and he, he knows they're important. So he does try to emphasize some recourse to books, <laughs> although each child has his own screen, his personal screen, and they, they look at that probably more often than they do books, but he does insist they read some books, <laughs> so, so that's important. But times do change, as you, uh, as you can see. So although books in general now are, um, by the younger people, seen as less important, 
when you have a screen, you have everything available to you in your hand, and uh, you don't have to go to the library, you don't have to go to your bookcase to pull something out, you don't have to look up words, everything is there. So uh, the, the current generations are experiencing a, a real change from the one, the style of reading that I grew up with. So w with that said, I, I think it's important to have events like today where we do celebrate books for all of us, and not just nostalgically, but realistically, where we actually exchange books and pick up new ones and take them home and actually read them <laughs> instead of looking at our screens. So with that, I thank you. Good morning. My name is Emily, and I either will or will not be talking about Moby Dick <laughs> today. <laughs> Stick around. <laughs> uh, last year, Glenn invited me to speak at the book communion. Um, I think because of my background in studying literature, um, or maybe after convincing me to act in his mystery play, he just knew I was an easy mark. I'm not sure. <laughs> Either way, I really enjoyed talking about some of my favorite books last year. I think one of them had a whale in it. <laughs> But today, as we're reflecting on authorship, I felt called to explore an area of the writing process that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, it's worse than writer's block. It's rejection. We all fear it. You don't have to be an author to know what that feels like. Um, but the good news is that we are in excellent company. Some books that were initially rejected by publishers. Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, she was told to stick to teaching. <laughs> Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl was rejected by publishers 15 times before I found a publisher. My personal favorite is L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz, which was rejected for publication so many times that he kept a journal called A Record of Failure <laughs> with all the rejection letters he received. I'm not sure if that's healthy, but that's amazing. <laughs> and even if a book gets published, there's still the possibility of critical and popular rejection. One contemporary review of Anne Frank's diary, the girl doesn't, it seems to me, have a special perception or feeling which would lift that book above the curiosity level. Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, New York Times Review, it lacks imagination and is powerless to scare. <laughs> Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass, a mass of stupid filth. <laughs> and he was fired from his government job after that was published. But my all-time favorite is Lord of the Rings. A critic, who is also J.R. Tolkien's friend, close friend, says, oh god, no more elves. <laughs> As you use, you might have already noticed some of the rejections share a theme. They're often fearful of women who are not sticking to defined roles, of sexuality, of queerness, of speculative fictions that challenge our familiar assumptions, of the truly weird and wild. And some, to be sure, might just really be tired of elves. But today or sometime, when you touch a book 
I invite you to hold in your heart the unknown storytellers who have been rejected, criticized, and excluded. Remember that many authors we now consider beloved were unknown or nearly forgotten in their lifetime. William Blake, Emily Dickinson, Zora Neale Hurston, who was buried in an unmarked grave. At this point, I would like to point out that one of my favorite books was rejected, disparaged, and forgotten. What work of genius could inspire such a backlash? It's Moby Dick. Moby Dick was turned down by many publishers, one of whom shared his hot take on life aboard the Pequod. First, we must ask, does it have to be a whale? While this is a rather delightful, if somewhat esoteric, plot device, we recommend an antagonist with a more popular visage among the younger readers. For instance, could not the captain be struggling with a depravity toward young, perhaps voluptuous maidens? <laughs> An actual criticism. Um, and critics, upon its publication in 1891, a rhapsody run mad, it repels the reader. An ill-compounded mixture of romance and matter of fact. When Melville died in 1891, Moby Dick had sold about 3,000 copies in 40 years. He was almost entirely forgotten as an author until the Melville revival 30 years after his death. Why did it have to be a whale? <laughs> I want to conclude with a watery metaphor, with the idea that all of our lives like drops of rain on the ocean, creates ripples. It's impossible to know what effects those ripples will have now and in the future. When you are feeling buried in rejection and criticism, when you feel most keenly that you will someday be forgotten, know that your legacy will ripple out. Know that many of us are avid fans of your story, however weird and wild however full of ruby slippers, elves, and whales, whether it, your story fits into this time or is for all time. We love your authentic, unheard, half-forgotten stories, you authors of your own lives. Thank you, Emily and Al. So I kind of thought Al might talk a little bit about how he wrote and published his own book which I'm very proud to stand here next to a published author. I was just in Books on Bee yesterday talking to Renee, and I hope everybody here is supporting Books on Bee. It's a wonderful community bookstore, and she said that Al's book is currently sold out. Um, apparently it's doing very well. So today we have already heard about the joy of writing a book, the joy of reading, and appreciating a favorite author. I have not written a novel yet, but I hope to someday, which is I'm sure something a lot of people are saying, someday, someday I'll write a great novel, but we'll get back to that in another decade or so. Um, so I'll talk just for a moment about something I have written about the process of writing a play. 
One of the things that people always ask, of course, is where do you get your ideas? I had not originally intended to write a new mystery dinner play for this year. After the last couple, I'd said I've used up all of my good ideas, and plus there are a lot of work, which I generally tend to avoid work whenever possible, and that it was going to be my last one. And then someone, I think it was Bob Simone, suggested maybe you could just simply do a rerun of an older play. People seem to remember an old Western we did several years ago called Ratbone. Why not just take that one out and do it over again? So I thought about it, and then at my last birthday party, some of my friends and me got together, and we did a read-through of that old script. It had some decent laughs, and the situations were amusing enough, but it just didn't feel right. Some of the characters were very thin and not as not as culturally sensitive as I would write today. Uh, the songs were quite amateur. Frankly, we could do better. And besides, since our church is suffering from a deficit this year, and we, could probably, we would probably have to charge more for tickets, I felt that people deserved something fresh and original. So I decided to buckle down and begin a brand new story. I would set it in that same fictional Old West town, but create an entirely new plot for a new audience. And so I began jotting down ideas for an outline for our new show, The Legend of Ratbone. As we all know, the basis of drama is conflict. So what would be the conflict in this new story? That part was easy. There's still a large pile of lost gold somewhere out in that town. Everyone has been looking for it for 15 years. The motive for this conflict will be greed. The various characters could be the townsfolk, the sheriff, the mayor, the banker, the barkeep, and throw in some more new characters into the mix. How about a gang of robbers that rides into town looking for the gold? Why, there would be plenty of conflict there. I also wanted this to be a better musical than that old play. The problem is I am not a musician. So I decided that this show would be much more of a collaborative effort than the previous ones. We have all enjoyed the voices of our marvelous choir here during many Sunday services. I would have to reach out to some of these talented performers and see if they would like to take part in this event. I was delighted that everyone I spoke to reacted with such positive enthusiasm. I'm very pleased to tell you that Jim Lewis, Ginny Delaney, Bethany Solway will all be acting and singing in this year's show. Along with returning favorites, Stuart Fink, Bill and Ruth DeSchmidt, and Bob Simone, um, and also I'll mention Emily Watkins, who purchased the service auction prize of creating a character for the show, has provided some invaluable ideas for story development. For me, it is an important part of the writing process to know who will be playing the characters. Then, as I'm writing and editing the scenes and imagining the voices of the characters, I can mold them into something appropriate for that individual actor. Within the script, I put together some lyrics for the original and adapted songs and sent them off to the musicians to have them uh, develop. And I cannot wait to see what amazing show-stopping musical numbers they will turn into. 
So picturing the actors having a great time speaking the dialogue and performing the songs made writing this script a special joy. We just recently had our first read through of the play. The cast gathered in the conference room and read the script together for the first time. We had a great time and there were many laughs. This is usually an indicator that the audience will enjoy it too. The songs are still in their very early stages of development, but Bethany did sing a small part of what will be her big solo number, and it was so beautiful that honestly, and this isn't hyperbole, anybody who was there can tell this is the truth, some of us were just weeping. It was so beautiful. So that song alone will be well worth the price of admission. <laughs> and I made a real attempt to create scenes that will be both amusing and dramatic and to avoid any cheap laughs. That is a joke that is just from a pun or from undeserved or undeveloped situation. And I tried to create characters that the audience would really get to know and care for. And then when some relationship or conflict results in a laugh or in suspense or in some revelation of motive, it would be far more meaningful. So is writing a play for a fundraiser more or less of a contribution to the human condition than writing a novel or a short story or a movie or a TV show script or for that matter a poem, a limerick or a haiku? I suppose it will be up to the reader or the viewer to decide. Writing this play brought me joy, and I hope it will bring joy to the cast and to the viewers as well. And sharing a little happiness with others cannot help but be a rare and beautiful thing. So let this be a prayer for writing, for reading, for performing, for singing, for dancing, for playing an instrument, for drawing, for painting. Let us celebrate the joy of creating and for experiencing enjoyment, awe, and admiration for the creations of others. Let us appreciate the creative efforts of those around us, whether large or small. From the 2,000-page book written by an experienced novelist to the first crude crayon scribble from a three-year-old child, for we all have within us that God-like power to create, to put something new into this world that did not exist before. May all of our creations lead to joy. May it be so.